This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the governor says he'll be announcing progress today on fixing the state's broken unemployment compensation system. Ron DeSantis spends the weekend holding briefings with medical experts in Miami and Orlando. They have not been overwhelmed by coronavirus and say it's time for non-COVID-19 patients to come back and take care of their health problems. They're also warning that mask you're wearing won't work if you don't use it right. When will Florida's statewide stay-at-home order come to an end? They haven't figured that out yet, but the governor says it won't be like they can just flip a switch and things will be back to normal. People have to be convinced they're safe. On the Sunrise interview, we talk with Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed about the latest threat to the citrus industry in Florida. It comes from China, but it's not coronavirus. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and the latest from Florida Man, a pastor who sucker-punched a 70-year-old man who was trying to deliver free food to people hurt by the lockdown. And now, the top stories on Sunrise for Monday, April 27th. It's a new week in Florida. Time for a fresh round of complaints about the state's infamous unemployment compensation system. More than 267,000 Floridians have received checks, but that's only about half the number of people who applied just last week. And there's a huge backlog. Nearly 2 million Floridians have applied for jobless benefits since the stay-home order was issued. And if you tried to file a claim over the weekend, you discovered the computers were down for maintenance. Governor Ron DeSantis says they're trying just about everything to make that jalopy run. There's never been uh, more manpower devoted to a single economic problem, certainly since I've been governor, but I'll bet you in the state's history than what's being done right here. To take 2,200 employees from other agencies, get all hands on deck, to be doing major architectural changes to a really bad system. I mean, this system would normally process 1,000 claims in a day. That, that'd be like a good day for them. So now you have a crush where you're having hundreds of thousands of people apply. And so this has been done uh, 24-7. We have people working on it. I don't think we've probably ever had an agency uh, work as hard on a single problem in terms of man hours that people are putting in. Now, I had to make a change at the leadership. So I have Jonathan Satter, Secretary DMS, um, and he's, he's there every day pushing to get checks out. That's the number one thing we're looking to do. Now, you obviously, this is taxpayer money, and so someone says an application, you know, there needs to be a way to process it, it's, and, and that's what he's working on. But 267,000 now, I know they've done more this weekend. Uh, we are gonna have an, a, a good report, hopefully on Monday, to be able to do it. But just people should understand that this has been a, um, a tsunami that this system was not built for. And look, this system is, is a bad system, and it was overpriced. And I don't know why they paid that much money for it, but I would also say, even if you built a perfect system, six months ago, no one would sit down and say, well, you should maybe plan on the economy just voluntarily ceasing. That's just not something that, that would have been. So we, we understood the great recessions here. This is here, and so these changes have been made. We brought in, uh, the state brought in 100 new servers to be able to expand the capacity uh, with, with this system and, and have done many other things to be able to do it. So it's a, it's a huge, huge priority for the state of Florida because I understand personally if I used to work paycheck to paycheck. I mean, I didn't have two nickels to rub together until, you know, for, until I got out of the military. Um, and at the end of the day, when you're working paycheck to paycheck and this suddenly you, you suddenly get laid off, 
it's tough, especially if you have bills to pay, especially if you have kids, um, and especially if you don't know what's going to happen two weeks, four weeks down the road. So we understand that, um, and that's why we've moved heaven and earth to be able to get these checks out. I think when all, when all is said and done, when we really document and let people know the extent uh, of, of things that had to be done to get there, I think people will be, be really surprised at, at, at the level of manpower that this took. But I think they'll be glad that it was done. Um, and so we're, uh, we're continuing to work every day. Florida Democrats are holding another virtual news conference today to call on the governor to do more to fix the unemployment system and improve benefits. COVID-19 has now claimed the lives of more than 1,000 Floridians, including more than 300 in nursing homes and adult living facilities. But Governor DeSantis says we are doing better than other states that were hit hard by the virus. Florida is ground zero for the nursing home. I mean, we're God's waiting room. We have a huge number of facilities, a huge number of residents. Um, but because of, 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 of the proactivity that we did, if you look at Florida compared to other states and you look at fatalities connected to long-term care facilities, uh, New York per 100,000 residents, if you, if you put it apples to apples, New Jersey has 23 fatalities in nursing homes per 100,000, New York 18, Massachusetts 17 and a half, Connecticut 10 and a half, Louisiana 10, Pennsylvania 6, uh, 6.6, Florida's 1.2 fatalities per 100,000 in those long-term care facilities because there was clearly a risk there and there have been a lot of resources expended. But what we found was some of the cases in these facilities were because the facilities didn't follow the regulations. Workers who were sick were allowed access. They ended up spreading to staff and to residents, um, and you ended up having cases there. But there were also instances in which there was no evidence that, that any of the staff were, were sick initially. And this is an asymptomatic spreader, let's say. They go in, and in Suwannee County, you had like 40 staff that got infected. Uh, at, a, at, a, at a nursing home. So we tried to figure out, okay, you, know, you can screen, but if there's nothing to screen, then what are you going to do? So we've created, um, and they've been going at this now for several weeks, 50 National Guard strike teams, four-man teams. They, they affirmatively go into these facilities, particularly ones that we may feel are at risk, and they will test staff, they will test residents uh, to try to see if there's an outbreak, and then if there is an outbreak, prevent it. Of course, the big question on everyone's mind right now is when is it safe for people to leave their homes and return to work? The governor does not have an answer for you yet. I'm going to do everything in a very smart, methodical, safe way. Uh, I'm less concerned about a specific date than I am about getting it right. We have all kind of great stuff that have been done on this task force. I'm going to go back to Tallahassee. I'm going to pour through more of it, and then we're going to look. And then we are going to be very much uh, looking at this White House roadmap as you look at the different phases. And I think the way to, to think about it is, if you go back to the middle of March and you look at see how uh, people, how fearful a lot of people were, the, there, was a, there was really a hysteria in the country uh, about this. And it was a novel thing. People didn't necessarily know. Um, and so a lot of people were really fearful. I would say more so than after 9-11 more so than after the financial crisis. And so as we've now kind of come in Central Florida on the other side of it, look, it's not easy. There have been people that have been infected and gotten sick. There have been people in the hospital. Unfortunately, there have been people that have passed away, not nearly as many here as I think a lot of people predicted. But, but that's just the reality. So I think the, the thing is, is you know, as you go forward, you know, are you doing that in a way that's safe, smart, a step-by-step, -step, phased approach? 
it's not uh, turning on a light switch and all of a sudden we're back to February 1st. It's just not the way it's going to work uh, because some of this is about what we're doing, obviously in conjunction with, with people that know health. We're obviously consulting with people who are involved uh, in the economy, but it's also about confidence. I mean, people need to have confidence that, uh, that, that we're going in a good direction. And, I, and I, I, I'm glad that they were able to talk about what's happened in Central Florida because if you go back six weeks, the, the people saying that Florida was going to be another New York or another Italy and all that, those have all been proven to be false. Uh, Florida's performed better than anyone predicted. Uh, this has not been easy. There's been taken a lot of effort. Uh, but I think people should be comforted in knowing that all these predictions of hundreds of thousands of people hospitalized uh, were not accurate, and that's just not been the case. So, so, so that's a good thing, and I think people can – can, can, can be comforted by that, that all the stuff we heard, you know, just really hasn't come to pass um, the way the way they was put out. As the politicians and the corporate suits make their plans to reopen the state economy, medical professionals continue to urge caution. Dr. Y.L. Barzoom is the CEO and president of Cleveland Clinic Florida, and he says it's going to be a long time before social distancing comes to an end. In fact, it may become the new normal. Now, one thing that I do think is important for everybody to recognize is that it's never happened in any of our lifetimes that we have reversed a viral quarantine. So what we're going to be seeing here over the next several weeks and months will be educational to each of us every single day. I think that there's a lot of excitement about seeing what happens as we move forward, as we start slowly seeing changes with the requirements that we've had put in place. But please recognize that we will learn every day and we may have to step back from some of those decisions as a society and also understand that you have to recognize where you sit in terms of your own personal risk. I have my own parents who are 75 and 84 years old and I've told them that regardless of what happens in the coming weeks, I expect that they will still remain indoors and when they're outside, they will always have a mask on, they'll wear gloves. As a society, some of the principles that we've learned around social distancing, frequent hand washing, uh, for example, wearing masks when we're out in public, preserving some sense of personal space, these are things that we have to stick with. So recognize that just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. And probably most importantly is if you have any symptoms at all, a cough, GI problems, a sore throat, a fever, it is your social responsibility to your fellow human beings to stay home and to get tested. So even if you have the opportunity to go back to work, if you are sick, you need to say something about that. That it is just too much of a risk to allow our fellow humans to get sick because somebody doesn't want to say something about it. So please take that advice seriously. When the governor declared a health emergency for COVID-19, he ordered hospitals to cancel elective procedures to free up bed space and preserve the limited supply of protective gear for doctors and nurses. But Dr. George Rawls with Orlando Health says many people still need to see a doctor or go to the emergency room. And now is the time. We have been able to maintain um, the critical services online throughout this entire event. We've, we've not stopped taking care of the serious trauma cases. We've not stopped taking care of stroke patients and other patients uh, with emergencies or really urgent medical needs. But there are some other critical things that are not uh, coming through the EDs now that are not coming into the hospitals that we really are concerned about. And 
I will say to some degree concerned enough about to say this uh, is an upcoming surge of, it, of itself, really a surge of unmet medical needs. And it's time for the community to understand that the numbers support uh, this being uh, the time to come back and get your health care. Uh, you need to come back and take care of yourself. Our doors are open. Our hospital and hospitals across uh, Central Florida are safe. Um, there are many cases that we've seen come into the emergency departments that uh, were much, much worse than they would have been had they uh, come in a few days before. We've had patients who ignored chest pain for days and came in a cardiac arrest. We've had patients who ignored seizures and came in with much more severe situations. Uh, so that's really the most critical message I can give you from watching uh, not just what's happening on the front line uh, in the emergency department, but also uh, looking at the numbers and understanding where we are uh, in the community, in the state, and in, in the country in terms of the trend. Um, it, is, it is time to come back and get your health care. And we're here and we're open and we are safe. So uh, please, please take that message to heart. One more tip from the docs, that mask you're wearing is not your best line of defense. Orlando Health's Dr. Sunil Desai says if you wash your hands frequently and don't touch your face, that is far more effective than any sort of filter mask. It seems intuitive when people say you should universally mask. The, fir the first thing, I it's intuitive that we know what, how to use a mask. It is more important, and let me stress, and I think my physician colleagues will agree, hand hygiene, hand hygiene, hand hygiene, number one. And number two, don't touch your face after it's touched surfaces. Then the masking. If you, when you really get down to it, when you're, especially when we're in the hospital, we're trained to do this, but the vast majority of the public doesn't realize if you touch the mask in the center, how do you take off the mask? Where do you lay down the mask? If your hands aren't clean, that mask is worthless. So the analogy that I've used in the past is that mask is a power tool, it, and power tools come with manuals. These masks, it's intuitive on how to put it on, but we don't necessarily, we haven't trained people to appropriately take it off, touching the strings only, not touching the center of it, and how it's stored, and how long should you use it, how should you launder it. So use it, um, it, it is more important, and suffice it to, I'll get off my soapbox, which is, it suffice it to say, um, your hand hygiene and not touching your face and the social distancing uh, when it's judiciously applied, particularly in high-risk groups, is, is the most important. Next up on the Sunrise interview, we talk with Florida Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed, who has a problem with the feds. They're recommending that China be allowed to send fresh citrus to the USA. Why is Commissioner Freed worried? Well, citrus greening disease has decimated Florida groves, and you'll never guess what country it came from. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed, and she has a beef with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. What's going on, Nikki? Well, first of all, thank you for having me back. You know, a, a couple of things are going on. Uh, one is for some odd reason, uh, the USDA federal government has agreed to import citrus from China, uh, which is just absolutely mind-boggling considering that the president for the last six weeks has just been going after China and wanting to rethink our relationship with China and making sure that we are having more uh, United States-made products and fruits and vegetables from our, from our own country. So really, it, 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 and even in a time during, during this pandemic, when you're seeing so many of our farmers struggling uh, and really trying to make ends meet and all of our crop loss across the state, uh, to allow imports into our state, um, it's just, I, I just can't understand it. 
And besides all that, uh, we know that the citrus greening that has really um, decimated our citrus here in the state of Florida, reducing output by almost 75%, came from a, a disease from China. Uh, and unfortunately, China's imports of fruits and vegetables are known to have a pests and diseases uh, that really are not um, conducive to, to the state of Florida and has a real chance of, of killing so much more of our ag production. It's just astonishing that we would be doing this um, and, and we are asking USDA uh, to really um, you know, rescind this very misguided proposal. What was USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue's justification for doing this? Because we have a long history, especially in Florida, of keeping out you know, fruits and vegetables that are considered a threat to our domestic crop. You know, I, I don't know. Um, we, we sent a, a pretty a strong letter to him this week, um, as well as supporting documentation and supporting letters from so many of our industry members here in the state of Florida. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it was part of a larger trade deal um, that was happening or, you know, I, I don't know. It kind of got snuck on us. Uh, it wasn't something that had been up for conversation that we could have weighed in prior to this. Uh, it just kind of landed. Uh, and now we're really asking for um, for them to rescind this proposal. It, it's just, it's not it's the wrong, ne- never the right time um, with all of the different types of, of pests and diseases that could come and cause serious harm. But also, especially during these times when we are, are facing uh, such devastation in agriculture. I, That's I, the first thing. <laughs> I hate to bring this up. It almost seems, you know heresy, but is this one of those situations where you want like the governor to uh, use his contacts in the White House? to change this? I mean, sure. You know, if the governor, you know, is willing to, to, to have that conversation and it's not just even, you know, this, you know, we, we, but this has been something that we've been dealing with, you know, for, since I got into office and, and so many of our farmers and growers are for the last 10 years that have been very vocal about the new NAFTA, which is USMCA, that does something very similar. Uh, it has a, a trade negotiation, a trade deal with Canada and with Mexico and is allowing Mexico to really uh, dump a whole bunch of their products at cheaper prices um, with less labor standards. Um, they get stipends and stimulation from uh, their their government, uh, as well as just different testing standards and pesticides and fertilizers, and, and they're able and allowed to bring in their products into our state. I mean, you can see it in, in our food stores, um, you know, that some of our food stores you go to and you see Mexican tomatoes where it's so frustrating because the same exact day I'm seeing you know, hundreds of millions of pounds of tomatoes being plowed under here in the state of Florida. Uh, and so we, we've been asking for that um, and had asked for, you know, the Florida congressional delegation stood strong during uh, the implementation and passage of USMCA to vote against it. We almost defeated it. Um, and But we got some, you know, compromise on some other types of companion language on legislation that we're working through. Um, but this is something that we've been fighting for. Ag's been fighting for for, for almost a decade. And ever since I got in, this has been one of my top priorities is to try to stop some of this uh, illegal Mexican imports into our state. Uh, Democrats in the Florida Senate sent a letter to the governor uh, asking him to you know, deal with all sorts of issues in the covid crisis. And one of those issues was specifically securing our food process, you know, basically our food supplies in the state. What should the state be doing to secure those food supplies? Well, I mean, the, the reality is that the, the food supply here in the state of Florida is pretty secure. Um, as far as, you know, we, we've got some, we've got the best growers and the best producers in the entire country right here in the state of Florida. Um, but what's happening is that when we changed uh, the, you know, when, when everything happened with COVID, the marketplace shifted significantly. Most of our farmers 
um, do bulk purchasing to restaurants, to schools, to Disney, to our cruise line industry. And when those markets plummeted uh, and stopped purchasing, um, ag, you know, was in, in a conundrum. Uh, you know, a lot of them had to plow under um, because they didn't have the resources and the financial ability to just, you know, to, to take the, the crops off. Um, and some, though, did and donated a lot to our food banks. Uh, and so what we really needed to do is a couple of things. One is to really mandate that all of our state agencies, such as Department of Corrections and our nursing homes that are under um, our purview, uh, purchase more fresh and Florida, Florida-grown produce. Uh, that is one thing that the state of Florida could absolutely do. Uh, and what we have been doing inside the department is we've been getting aggressive and creating all types of outside-the-box ideas and suggestions. Um, we have had all of our ag producers that, that wanted to uh, register with My Florida Marketplace that allows them to be a vendor. Uh, that way, uh, with, like Department of Corrections actually purchased $300,000 worth of produce from um, the Miami-Dade Far- um, Farm Bureau. And we made that connection after we had our farmers down there uh, register. We also have established uh, a new web page on our website, uh, Keep Florida Growing, uh, that, is a, that is asking all of our producers to upload which commodities they have available for sale, um, what, where they're located, and the expiration dates. And our consumers can go right onto this website, very user-friendly, find out where the local produce is, um, and also where their local farmer's markets and new picks. So we've done a, a tremendous amount to really stand up agriculture here in our state, um, but a lot of the recovery is going to come down from federal dollars. Uh, we also were not given the flexibility that we needed. Um, I've been asking for it for over three weeks from the USDA that when the money is coming down for all of our seeding programs, our food banks, our school nutrition programs, um, making that the priority is to purchase foods from domestically and from your own state. Uh, we were not given that flexibility until Friday, uh, when unfortunately we're getting to the end of our harvest season. And that those dollars, um, you know, might be too little too late uh, to really save the crops that are that are being, you know, either plowed under or, or rotting right now on the vines. Any final words for the fans, Nikki? You know, uh, the, you know, really at this time, I, I really ask our consumers um, go onto our website, you know, sx.gov/keepfloridagrowing. Uh, demand more fresh and Florida, Florida-grown produce in your food stores. Uh, and really buy local. Um, that is going to save our economy. We're now number one economic driver um, and now that tourism has kind of stopped. Uh, and so it's really important to not only thank a farmer, um, buy your local produce uh, from your farmers, and really this is a great opportunity to contribute to the economic success of our state. Commissioner Freed is still waiting on a reply from the head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Your calendar of events? Well, the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services is scheduled to begin accepting applications today from farmers who want to grow industrial hemp. A 2018 federal farm bill legalized hemp as an agricultural product after decades of debate. U.S. District Judge Robert Hinkle will start holding a trial in a challenge to a 2019 state law about felons' voting rights. The trial will be conducted through video conference because of the virus. Some Democratic members of Congress, including Charlie Crist, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and Kathy Castor, are holding an online news conference at 10 to call for improvements to Florida's troubled unemployment comp system. State Senator Jose Javier Rodriguez of Miami and Miami-Dade County Commissioner Eileen Higgins will provide updates on COVID-19 during an online briefing at 1. Congresswoman Kathy Castor of Tampa, State Senator Jose Javier Rodriguez of Miami, State Representative Dolores Hogan-Johnson of Fort Pierce, and Miami Beach Mayor Dan Gelber, part of an online roundtable discussion about climate issues, not COVID, at 2 o'clock. 
and the Polk State College Board of Trustees will meet in a conference call at 4 o'clock this afternoon. And finally, the continuing adventures of Florida Man. A Florida man who has a day job as a pastor is accused of punching a 70-year-old man who is trying to deliver free food to people in need. Felipe Madrigal, the president of the Rotary Club of Doral, told police he had gone to Opalaca to deliver 12 pallets of food when the pastor of Mount Tabor Ministries, 64-year-old Bernice McKell, walked up and asked what he was doing. The victim says he told McKell that he was there to provide food to people, but the pastor got angry because he thought the food was going to be donated to his church and not handed out that day. When Madrigal asked him to help anyway, police say Mikkel punched him in the face and down he went. After being knocked out, Madrigal didn't go to the hospital. Instead, he took those 12 pallets of food and headed to Opalaka City Hall to hand it out there. The pastor claims he hit Madrigal in self-defense because he thought the 70-year-old man was going to attack him. He's charged with aggravated battery on an elderly person. By the way, the pastor has a long criminal record that dates back to 1976, including charges like theft, battery, possession of cocaine. He was more recently charged with kidnapping, false imprisonment, robbery, and battery for an incident involving his wife. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.